0: The Home Show with Sinead Ryan.
1: With Dyken
0: on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome along to the Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up on this episode, the Timeless Antiques Fair returns to the RDS in Dublin this weekend and we'll be joined by one of its exhibitors. Is the housing crisis deterring employers from hiring staff outside Ireland? We'll be finding out. We'll take a look inside the world's oldest operating lighthouse at Hook Head in County Wexford and Jennifer Sheehan is back from Paris with a sneak peek at the fashion show for interiors. If you'd like to get involved in the pod, if you'd like to uh, talk about anything we're covering or indeed suggest anything you'd like to hear covered, well then do get in touch with us at the home show at newstalk.com. We do love hearing from you and of course I'm over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. Now, I am very much looking forward to an item a little bit later in the show uh, on lighthouses and specifically um, Hook Lighthouse, which I've been to. Now, some of you will remember the book, and, and indeed, the movie that was made, The Light Between Oceans, which featured um, a lighthouse and it was a romance and they found a baby washed up on the shore and they brought it up and all that. It was a fabulous book, absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I think I'm fascinated by that whole thing about living in a lighthouse. So I was delighted to discover you can actually stay in one. In Ireland, in a few actually, uh, they are operated by Heritage Ireland and you can uh, stay there and like an Airbnb and uh, I think that should be a fantastic thing to do. So I'm definitely going to look into that and I'll ask one of my guests about that. But when you think of it, you kind of think of the lonely, windswept, cold, hard life that maybe a lot of the lighthouse keepers would have lived over the years. And now they're all... Automated now, but I think it'll be fascinating to hear what life would have been like. So, listen if you have a favourite lighthouse in your area, or if you've ever lived in one or stayed in one, I'd love to hear all about it. Uh, let me know. Email us on uh, the home show at newstalk.com. You're very welcome along to the show. This weekend sees the Timeless Antiques Fair returning to the RDS in Dublin, and as ever, it promises to showcase the best in furniture and objets d'art and includes a rare bookcase once owned by David Bowie and a 400 year old diamond ring that travelled the Silk Road. Well, joining me now is Rupert McBain of McBain and Byrne, who are exhibiting at the RDS this weekend. Rupert, you're very welcome back to the home show.
0: Thank you, Sinead.
1: Now, how did Timeless go for you last year? I was at it. um, There were big crowds, but they're thoughtful, quiet crowds. Are they people who come with a serious intent to buy pieces? Are they waiting on this exhibition or are they just looking for a, a, a Sunday day out?
0: I think it's very much both. I was amazed really at how many people and how interested people were. And I think it's a combination of people who are looking for something specific and other people who just want an opportunity to see a variety of things and see what excites them and tap up people for some knowledge and information.
1: Mm. Do you find an Irish audience different to a British one? Are are they do are they looking for different things? Are they more cagey, more talkative, <laughs>
0: more money? <laughs> well, well, <laughs> actually, th- there is certainly a lot of money in Dublin. Mm. Um Certainly talkative, which is which is a joy. And there are there are subtle differences about, in my field, furniture, what people um, are looking for. But in the end, it's about good things. Yeah. And I think Dubliners have a good eye.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about some of the items you're showcasing this year that people can, can have a look at.
0: We, we've got rather a lovely table by Mac Williams and Gibton about 1825. They're Dublin cabinet makers, hell of a table. It's special for three reasons. Its shape, the lovely reeded legs and beehive stem, the sweep of the legs. It's special because of its craftsmanship, mm. the attention to detail and the way things are executed. But I think most importantly, it's, it's the timber. Mm. Um, mahogany from the West Indies, hard, beautifully figured, great color doesn't get much mm. better.
1: And and it stood the test of time, obviously, because in terms of tables like that, how many does it seat? I mean, is it large?
0: Yeah, it's large. I mean, you can get 12 people around it yeah. or more with the leaves in.
1: So I'm wondering, I mean, I suppose that's a limited market of itself, that somebody would have a property that would be big enough to house it and that that's the kind of piece they're looking for, you know, when they, they're not looking for something modern. Do you find that um, when you showcase at something like that, uh, that People have already done their research. They know exactly what they're looking for, or they're willing to be persuaded.
0: I think again, it's it's two. There are two people fall into two camps. Some people are very well informed and know exactly what they want, mm. and some people just see something and think, "I want I that." Have to have it. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Now, what else do you have? A pair of Italian benches.
0: Yeah, Casapanca's. That these you can sort of imagine them in an Italian palazzo in you know the early 18th century incredibly evocative and um, painted in trompe l'oeil so it's got that really three-dimensional oh. feel i mean they reek yeah. of history and they've come out of kilmany house in fife they're, they're fabulous objects in their own right but they bring with them quite a story mm-hmm.
1: very pretty i'd say yeah. yeah 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 and people do like like that kind of thing um now one of the things that i saw that you have uh, it is it's a kind of you're calling it a sculptural wine system. Now, tell me yeah. what that means in in English.
0: <laughs> well, look, I think stone brings a different presence. Hmm. These are large sculptural objects that were intended to hold hold wine, and they're they're massive and they're they're calm and like they're an,
1: ground a ewer and amphora something um, like that. Well,
0: if you imagine a scallop shell, one of mm-hmm. them escaped like shaped like a scallop shell the other is planar but they're essentially open vessels oh right um, and they have the advantage that they're for storing wine but really they're just rather beautiful yeah objects yeah
1: you probably wouldn't do that now with them um, so some of the others I mentioned there about uh, a, a rare bookcase uh, that was owned uh, once by David Bowie and Carl Lagerfeld yeah Right. Well, that's done the rounds. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, I tell you, I'm really looking forward to seeing this because I've never got the Memphis group. I've never got it. But David Bowie and Carl Lagerfeld can't be wrong. So I am really looking forward to being shown it. Um, I think about 1980, sort of multicoloured. I, I will be educated and hopefully come away loving it.
1: Yeah, you'll want deep pockets. 17,000. Euros, it's on sale for.
0: Well, it's not for
1: everyone. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's well, not for everyone. It is quite a special thing. I, I have to give it. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Okay,
1: it's worth it, right? And the diamond ring, um, four hundred years old. Of course, all diamonds are old, uh, you know. But this this is a special piece, is it? Have you? I, I know there's a lot of uh, jewelry exhibits there. You're, it's not your area, but uh, that that kind of thing is on display too.
0: It's on my hit list and I think anyone (laughs) should have a look at it because the idea of it coming in on the Silk Route... It'll be a lovely thing to see, and I'm. I'm really. I will go and see Weldon and ask them to show yeah, me.
1: well, Weldon's. I mean, they're so long standing in Dublin. They're so well known yeah. here, uh, and they've beautiful pieces. And actually, they run a cracking uh, Instagram site. If anybody wants to to take a look at it, there. Uh, now, into the kind of modern, uh, Rupert. I know that there's um, Motorheads will get their will get their day out. There's um, a, a Michael Schumacher uh, piece in here as well.
0: I want to go on that. I think it was used for um training drivers, wasn't it? Yeah, for it's the a simulator. Formula One. Yeah, it. Ferrari. Yeah, well I really I really want to go on that. Okay. I, I don't think I do it justice, but how exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah, so listen, lots to catch the eye down there in the RDS uh, if people want to go uh, and it's well worth going to see it. Now, uh, on a kind of a more general note Rupert, when like, Do you still get excited when you see pieces? You're talking there with enthusiasm about what you're looking forward to seeing. But if somebody asks you to come in, maybe maybe it's a great house clear out or somebody's asking you to source a piece. Um, you know, do, I know it's a business for you. It's your day job. But what, what gets you going?
0: You know, as soon as you see it, um, you then analyse why you like it afterwards. But it's to do with the shape. It's to do with the colour. It's to do with its presence. Um and as I say, it hits you in the gut immediately.
1: So when you see a piece and you know from a corner of a room, that's a Chippendale or that's, you know, a, a William and Mary piece, whatever it is. Do, like, do you have to interrogate against yourself then and, and kind of nearly prove that you're looking at what you look Because I'm sure fakery just covers your industry.
0: You have to be very disciplined and very analytical. So once the rush of excitement passes, you've then got to dig deep and you've got to really be very focused in analysing each aspect of it. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's it's easy to be fooled.
1: And fakes have been around as long as people are buying furniture. Um I mean, are they convincing a lot of the time, or or would you be able to spot one a
0: mile off? It it varies. Some of them are phenomenally convincing, mm. and and others are a joke. <laughs> but, but 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 there are some very clever people around, and also, you know, things were made in different styles in different eras, so something that was made in an 18th century style but in the 19th century can be quite difficult to pick, Mm. that it is 19th century Mm. rather than being 18th century. And of course
1: it doesn't matter in one sense if people love it and want it. I I think that the thing is as long as they haven't overpaid for it or, or believe it's something that it's not. So provenance is important.
0: I think that that's right and I think that's key. You've got to love it. But I think people need to pay the correct amount and need to be aware of what it is. And, mm. and 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 that's, I suppose, one of the good things about coming to a, to Timeless, that that's yeah. what you're going to get.
1: Because you know you're going to get uh, experts and uh, authentic pieces. That, that's right,
0: that. yeah. Okay,
1: all right. Anyway, you're looking forward to the rest of the weekend. So Timeless continues uh, this weekend. Uh, today, uh, open from 11. So you have time to get down there now. And tomorrow, indeed, the adult ticket is €10 Euros and children under 16. If you can gather together a child under 16 who's willing to go to that well good luck to you because they get in for free and um, you, can, you can go along and if you have a pass you can uh, use it over both days. Rupert McBain of Macbain and Burn. Uh, I'm sure there will be a rush to your uh, area of the RDS and thank you so much for joining us again on The Home Show.
0: Thank you very much for asking. <laughs>
1: Now, Hook Lighthouse in County Wexford is the oldest operational intact lighthouse in the world, built by William Marshall Earl of Pembroke 800 years ago. And here to tell us more about the history of it and all things lighthouses are is Lorraine Waters, General Manager at Hook Lighthouse. Lorraine, you're very welcome along to the Home Show.
2: Oh great and and thank you for having me and I'm delighted now to be here this morning. And it's Um, a
1: super uh, visitor attraction. I've been there myself a couple of times, got a wonderful tour right up as far as we could go uh, with uh, one of your guides down there. Tell us a little bit about the history of uh It's very well, old well, for a start, isn't well, it? Well,
2: it is. It is. And it's, its I mean, an 800-year-old building in modern day it's still standing and still doing its original function. is pretty incredible. And I'm really, really impressed because you got its full title. You know, everybody who leaves out the little intact part, you know, because <laughs> we often say we're not the oldest, but we are the longest running um, and continuously running. And that's something we're very proud of. We're very proud of the fact, that I suppose, that we are also continuing on that tradition and we all and feel like we're the new custodians. But the lighthouse itself, it's origins 800 years ago. But we even go further back than that. We go back to 5th century where the first fires were lit here on our peninsula by um, a monk called uh, St. Devon. And um, funny enough, if you anglicise his name, uh, Devon is Hook, and that's where Hookhead actually got his name. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the history of lightkeeping and um, looking after mariners at sea is, is incredible. It's, it's it's very long-serving here down at Hook. And of course, William Marshall, the greatest knight, the appointed gracious knight, who married stronghold's daughter, inherited the lands here. And as he was heading up to New Roth, around New Rothport to establish it, you can imagine here on a wild, crazy night, it was quite hectic and it was treacherous. So he also then decided that if he survived it, he would build Tintran Abbey, but then he would also build a purpose-built lighthouse. So our lighthouse now Due to William Marsh is standing nearly thirty six metres tall, twelve metres wide, and has been carrying out its original function for over eight hundred years. I mean, that's pretty incredible. It
1: is incredible, and when you see the structure in place and how well built it was, I mean, we have buildings that we're building today that aren't going to maybe last a uh, hundred years. Never, that, mind, that never mind, never mind, eight hundred <laughs> years. You, you kind of, it is a testament to both the need for it uh, and yes. also. Uh, the, the value in which it was held by mariners and locals alike. Tell me about the, why monks were involved in, for so many years there. What, what had it to do with them?
2: Well, you see, it was a month that came over from Wales. Now, of course, you know, if you go back, the records are probably, you know, they're not all there. But uh, Devon came over and established a monastery here. She wasn't that the way of things. Everybody moved everywhere else back in the day. She was still do it in modern day and we settled everywhere else. But they felt a need for those fires to be lit. I mean, it's like you said, when you're at the top of the terrace if you look out over the headlands, there's very few trees left. So a lot of the trees and the brush is what they actually used to light those fires, um, and they would have worked them. Once William had built the tower, they would have actually stepped in and looked after the lighthouse as well, and they would have swapped over between Tintern Abbey and the lighthouse. And it was like a calling for them; it was something to do, do you know. And this is why uh, Javon actually, be, you know, he became a same. He became angry. He became um, canonized. it for the good work that he'd done. It was it was finding the niche. That that's literally mm-hmm. what he did, like in modern day. Found, found a want, and and he filled us, and we're very glad that he did because he, in in history, you know, did save an awful lot of sailors, and an awful lot of mariners. Indeed. Now, of
1: course, in all that time from, you know, setting fires with local uh, tinder or kindling, the power source would have changed over the years uh, along with the lighthouse. So talk to me about the different emanations of what was used uh, right up to, to modern day times.
2: OK, so, I mean, the, the easiest way to put it is, I suppose, the, the easiest was the, the timber and, and, and the gorse and everything else, and that was just used on the headlands. But once the tower then itself was built, coal was actually imported from Wales. So it was a mixture of coal and timber that would have had to be carried up through the building itself. And then, of course, we would have went on to, um, on to different items. They used whale oil, they would, would have used paraffin oil, we would have used coal gas. Uh, Coal gas is actually manufactured here on the site. We have a a building that we call, the an area that we call the gas yard sector maintenance building now. And then we would have went on to electricity. So when electricity came in in 1970, around 1972, it made things much easier for the lighthouse keepers. And then, of course, sure, everybody knows, you know, when we became automated then, sure, I suppose, we won't say it was the end of the lighthouse keepers, but it it, it was really, you know, mm. the tower was built to be fully functioning and now it's controlled remotely by Irish lights. And we have a gentleman on site here who helps look after it as well. So, I mean, it went from a huge amount of work to everything in modern day, a little bit like our phones, you know, a lot of work being done and uh, a lot of carrying, a lot of minding. And then, you know, in the blink of an eye. You know, electricity took over, yeah. automation.
1: Yeah, and you have to think, uh, hauling coal up the whole height of Hook oh, Lighthouse would have been a dirty <laughs> and smelly and job. Tell me, um, Lorraine, did families or light keepers ever live in the tower or were they always adjacent to it?
2: No, they would have lived in the tower in the early days before the houses were built. The houses outside were built in around eight, outside here in 1860. I'm actually in one of them now at the moment. Uh, they house their offices or cafe or gifts and... Uh, tour to ticketing offices so they would have actually lived in the towers so there would have been two floors we call them Liberty Hall and Monastery The so Monastery is the floor closest to the lens and that's actually where the principal keeper would have lived and people often go on tour and they go well, how come we had to you know, travel so far and I go no, no 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 you have to remember the work was over his head and then you would have had Liberty Hall where maybe two families would have lived at a time Gosh. and you can imagine in 18, you know, before 1860 if you had a home and, and you could bring your family with you 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 didn't mind that you were sharing. It was different and everything was so laboursome and so manual that you got up in the morning and before you knew it, your day was over. Mm. But you were there with your family and that came right through the whole thing then for the lighthouse keepers here. If you knew you were stationed at Hook Lighthouse, one thing was always said was you knew that you were going to be with your family. You were going to have a family life, a proper family life for a couple of years because you're all together at hook. At one mm-hmm. stage, there was three houses here. There was another house down, we called it the Cobbled Yard at the side of the lighthouse. Do you can imagine three families living here, you can imagine, you know, the fun with the kids and the wives talking and, you know, and then, of course, the commissioners of Irish lights coming down to do their inspections and everybody be tidied away and the kids be yeah. sent off the back walls but it was a real family home. I mean, and that and I book suppose, made it book incredible.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that was necessary because when you think of a lighthouse, you are thinking about something out in an outpost. I mean, yeah. it is on the very edge of land by its very nature. So lonely, windswept, cold. I, I suppose I referenced at the top of the show there that one of my favourite books is The Light Between Oceans and you get that real sense of, of bitterly cold, windy yeah. kind of weather. Yeah. And that idea that you would do that alone and go up. And I know that there were times when they deliberately recruited lighthouse keepers who didn't have families for that reason. Uh, but but actually, it does make a lot of sense to have have them there. Now, a there, lighthouse, of course, still needed today. Do we know how many there are working in Ireland, Lorraine?
2: So there's over 70 working lighthouses in Ireland. And those that aren't, I mean, obviously some have been completely decommissioned in that maybe the... There's been a fall off in marine traffic. You know, different things happen for different reasons. But there is also now with the Commissioner of Irish Lights an initiative called The Greatest Lighthouses of Ireland Project in where they're, you know, they're bringing them back to life. And even the ones that are the working lighthouse, they are looking at them as, you know, the tourist attraction. But it's also a way of, you know, bringing people to, to, to them, to explain to them, to show them. And it's a great way to recruit business as well mm-hmm. and to bring tourism and business and work into an area. But also for those that maybe are not functioning anymore. Do you know... To to not have them put out to seed. I mean, these were incredible old buildings that have, you know, incredible heritage. I mean, so I'm one of these people that I grew up around the Hook. I see it from my house, so I think she should be treated with massive respect, and I think all the buildings should. Mm. And that's exactly what Irish lights are doing. You know, they're they're bringing new life into them, and that that's fantastic. You know, I mean, what has more history than a building that's standing there eight hundred years? My golly, if they could talk. I mean, the, the the other lighthouses, I mean, the hook at 800 years, I would sit there for days and listen to her if she could.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I know that the uh, OPW probably, uh, or could be Irish Lights, has taken over some and rented them out. So you can actually um, stay in a lighthouse. Yeah, uh, yeah. A
2: lot of the county councils have, have yeah. done that yeah. um, and... You know, you can, uh, like, say, take Bannet uh, Lighthouse. Like, I mean, that's an absolutely incredible spot to stay mm. in. Um, and it's, and you do get that little bit of stark as well. You know, when the weather isn't so good, it gives you a real sense of what lighthouse keepers have to do. It's true mm. what you said. I mean, lots of time, lighthouse keepers, I mean, if you're on land, absolutely happy days. But if you're offshore, I mean, you could be there. Three lighthouse keepers could be there for three or four months. If the weather turns, you're you're missing you know, a huge amount of, of your own family life and, sure. and different things that were going on. But yeah, I mean, it's, the initiative is fantastic. I mean, all of these old buildings, and you said it yourself, I mean, how wonderfully built they, like, they are. I know the terrace itself hook is slightly different. It's around Terra Castle called the keep, rib-vaulted ceilings, gothic arches, you know, mural, intramural staircases. It's a, it's a completely different build. Mm. But ultimately, their purpose is the same. same. It's to say, we have your back. We're here.
1: Now I know that you are open as a visitor attraction um uh, all or most of the year but you are doing something special for Culture Night which is next uh, Friday Friday week which is the 20 yeah. the, sorry next Friday which is the twenty second. tell us what's going to be happening down in Hook.
2: Okay so we were delighted this year to be picked um to to actually showcase Culture Night a little bit more um and you know with, that made a difference as far as you know especially after the few years that we've had so this year what we've done is we're collaborating with a lovely, lovely lady called Danny Gill and she's doing a collaborative artistic response to lighthouses around Ireland. So she's gone around some of the lighthouses, she's got a feel for them and she's, she's pushed um, this experience together. So it's it's producing poems, stories, songs, audios, and, you know, some sound installation. So we're working with local artists, Sasha Trefuss, Danny uh, Richard Carr and we have some music from Baskerville. So... Sat herself a bit at the top of the tower, uh, the very you know, the where you would have came out on your tour. So she's going to be up there as as our guests make their way through the sound installation through the tower. And through some of the music, they will come up to Sasha then um, doing her spoken word. We also have a tasting table um, on the on the night. We are open until eight o'clock, so people can come if they want to just come, bring a picnic, sit outside, grab a cup of coffee, and watch the sunset. So a little bit, it's kind of like an end of season. It's like the end of your summer, but it's it's a very it's a very lovely event. It's a free event. You can just come, you know, park up, bring the children. A football around if you want, and you know, the others can go through the terror. Now, it is a ticket at events. On the night, we will have a couple of spaces. We always do that. Um, But I would recommend to everybody to book it on hookheritage.ie.
1: hookheritage.ie. All right. Well, look, that sounds like a fantastic experience. Uh, And you have three events starting at 6.30. So anybody who wants to have a look at that uh, can go. And if you miss it, sure, you can go down to Hook uh, at any time and have uh, a look around uh, the fabulous lighthouse. Lorraine Waters, General Manager at Hook. Thanks a million for chatting to us on The Home Show today. Now, according to business owners, another consequence of the ever-present housing crisis is that employers are being deterred from hiring staff outside of Ireland because they simply cannot guarantee accommodation for them. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Frank Morley, Managing Director of Corporate Care Relocation. Welcome to The Home Show, Frank. Thank tell, you for Tell us what problems companies are experiencing when they're trying to lo- locate staff to Ireland.
3: Sure, I mean, I think what they're experiencing is that when they move staff to to you know, to their their kind of chosen location, those staff are definitely faced with the problem that lots of people have, which is trying to find a suitable place to live.
1: And is it countrywide or is it mainly cities?
3: No, this is absolutely countrywide. So particularly exacerbated exacerbated by COVID. Uh, I think post COVID, we're finding that this issue affects basically. Every town in Ireland.
1: Now, a lot of these companies, of course, that we attract and that we want are the high-tech companies, the pharma companies. Now, they have staff generally that are very, very well paid. Is the shortage even at the upper end of the market for those people who can afford, you know, decent rents?
3: Yeah, there are probably a couple of points there, Sinead. I think the the, the issue with housing in Ireland is across the board. It goes from high end right down to low end. So there's no easy part of the Irish rental market. Uh, the second point I would make is that the majority of employers are very aware of this and essentially they're helping their employees when they arrive to find a place to live. While that costs them, the advantage to them is that that person isn't consumed by trying to find a place to live that they can work immediately when they arrive.
4: Mm.
1: Now, uh, some of them are also hamstrung by the fact um that company rules or or maybe their culture uh, only allows them pay a certain amount of their salary towards housing. Talk, talk to me about how that impacts.
3: Sure, of course. But this, this is a big issue. And I think a large part of moving to Ireland or indeed moving anywhere is that whether it's uh, companies like ours or employers, setting expectations is, is extremely, you know, key. I think one of the main expectations that employers must, uh, you know, bring to their employees when they move in here is that in practically all parts of Ireland right now, um, rental agencies will employ what we call the 40% rule. And what that means is that they will not allow a tenant to rent a property that consumes more than 40% of their net take-home pay. Mm. So like to put that in, into reality, a person earning €50,000 a year um will be allowed by an agent to rent a property costing €1,200 Euro or less. Gosh. And I can tell you there are very, very few, you know, good quality properties at that at, at rate.
1: Indeed. All right. And what role does an agency like yours play? Is it your job to kind of match up, get get people from yeah, one country I mean, to we, another? We
3: do a number of different things and I'm, I'm not here just to talk about what we do, but I think it's important. What a lot of employers are now doing is that they're employing companies like us and indeed our, our sort of peer companies to work with their employees to find a place to live. Now you might ask, how how is it easier for us? And I think it's easier for us because we very much do not depend on advertised properties. Mm. The majority of the properties, I'd say at this point, over 90% of the properties that we would locate for, for employees come either, either directly from owners that we're in contact with or through agents that we work very closely mm. with.
1: And do you think now with the global slowdown in tech that it might now free up some of those Google Land apartments, the ones down in the Docklands yeah, or the ones down in Grand Canal?
3: That's a great question. And, and certainly when, when we applied logic to this last year, we would have thought that to be the case. But the, 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 the kind of pent up demand in the Irish market is so extreme that it actually made no difference. And the Irish market, the the Dublin market in particular, uh, continues to be one of the most, I suppose, difficult rental markets anywhere in Europe.
1: And I suppose there's an indigenous waiting list, you know, of Irish people saying the minute they come up on, on stream, they're being hoovered up.
3: There are, but in fairness to the agents, they're very equitable. What we're finding generally is that agents and landlords are open to any good tenant. It's just for everybody, whether you live here or, or, and have always lived here or whether you've just arrived here. It's it's an extremely competitive market.
1: It seems to me that, you know, 100 or 150 years has passed since Guinness was building houses mm. for its employees yes. and indeed, indeed. other, other uh, industries. I wonder, yeah. will we see a return to that, Frank?
3: It's a good question. I mean, we hear anecdotally of different companies who are who uh, who are looking at this I suspect we won't go back to that point. I mean Ireland's problem is that we don't have enough apartments mm. um, so I think anything we can do either through government or through other kind of avenues to encourage more apartment building that's what we need to do and I think that's pretty much what every commentator is, is saying at the moment.
1: Alright. Well Frank Morley MD of Corporate Care Relocation thanks a million for bringing You're us right. up to date on that. And you're very welcome back to The Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan, if you'd like to get in touch with us. We are on email at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and of course you can catch up on any items you've missed uh, or any other uh, of the shows which are all podcast up on the Newstalk app which is powered by Go Loud. Now I am delighted to welcome back from Paris, no less, Jennifer Sheehan, our former Home of the Year winner who is our stalwart guest here. Jennifer, you've been doing your travels to bring us Great inspo from uh, an exhibition that you were at.
4: Yes, and I did catch a bit of the rugby, but I was all about interiors (laughs) and that's what's coming. You were at an exhibition, a trade show, Maison et Objet. Maison et Objet. You may not have heard of it because it is a trade show. So unless you're you're in trade, unless you're a retailer or a buyer or you're a designer or an architect, you wouldn't see it. So it's one of the biggest in the world. It's on every September and January and it's where all the... Greatest, most established designers uh, and lifestyle brands, and the up and comers, and everyone goes to kind of showcase their wares. Brilliant. So you can
1: get a kind of a look see because Paris yeah. is obviously the most fashionable sh- city in the world, and we know whatever's coming out there will yeah. be landing with us Some by the time it's mashed its way through IKEA <laughs> or next home. Yeah. It'll find our way it's into like a glimpse our home. into the future. Yeah, a yeah. very
0: beautiful future
4: <laughs> yeah. that may or may not become a reality. Okay.
1: And um, so what's it like going there? I mean, like, are there hundreds of exhibitors? Yeah. and thousands.
4: Oh, really? Thousands. There oh, was right. over 2,500 this year. Good Lord. It is like seven RDSs packed to the brim with exhibitors. But it's, it's not chaotic. It's very, very well organised and credit to the, to the organisers. Um, the prisons, and though, they're not going to be ganging up and no, big lumps about they, they walk elegantly
1: don't yes, they and they bring they, their poodles yeah, and, yeah
4: absolutely, yes. just to, just to <laughs> reinforce the stereotype and it's all organised so you know one hall is all focused on hospitality and there'd be buyers there from hotels and cafes and restaurants and all that kind of thing and then somewhere else might be focused on accessories and homeware and tableware so you can really go and find what you're looking for mm. it's very well organised
1: Okay well look you were there um, I there. You there. so we don't have to and <laughs> you saw lots and lots of different things. So give us a sense then of what is playing out in terms of inter- interiors themes. Mm. I presume sustainability is still showcasing across the board.
4: Huge. I'm, I mean, almost everyone had sustainability in some way, shape or form. And, you know, unless you're unless you're at the source of where people are are getting their materials it's hard to know how much of this is is actually true and how much of this is you know a bit of of greenwashing Um, but it was everywhere and where I really saw it come to the fore was in recycled materials so for example there was a fabulous rug uh, supplier who made it his business to go and find old carpets you know take them apart thread by thread wash them out re-knit them into the new patterns etc. Right. So so making yeah. sure that every single fibre was was, was new was coming from, from recycled materials. Um, and the same goes for you know recycled glass there was lots of people who were using that kind of thing. Um, old furniture that was being repurposed into something new so all you know they say sustainably sourced materials, which is hard, I think, to to know what that means. I, I find mm. sustainability a tough topic to, to know what it is right. because it's it, like whatever about the recycling and upcycling thing, yeah. which
1: everybody gets, you know, and when that's in expert hands, there's nothing nicer. Yeah. But the sustainably sourced is a bit like, you know, the wood. The, the forests mm. i mean should you be cutting down any trees or if you cut down one and plant two is that is that what's sustainable yeah and there's means? carbon and is that okay
4: yeah i don't know i'm not mm. the expert but i you know recycled materials you're right using a material for as long as possible um, without you know going and finding something new and shipping it somewhere else is, is probably the best way to go so yeah. lots of recycled materials and that's a good one to keep in okay,
1: mind okay good now in terms of um, well with that of course then is that push for natural materials i mean Yeah Nobody really wants the old hard plastic chairs or the the mm. kind of uh, fibre or, you know, it, the, the perspex, that. It's yeah. just not a good look anymore in our homes yeah. or or whatever. So, it, again, a push on on
4: natural um, huge. woods and textiles. Huge, huge. Everything was, was natural. So lots of natural woods, lots of things like bamboo, which, you know, you might think of kind of maybe cheap looking garden furniture, but actually they can do wonderful things that it. it's a very, very strong and very light material. So fabulous for use in furniture. Lots of wood, rattan. Even shell, I came across the most beautiful lighting supplier from the Philippines who used this specific type of shell that gave the most kind of incandescent, shimmery, gorgeous light. That was really, really beautiful. Uh, Lots of stone, loads and loads of stone. So stone sinks, uh, you know, marble countertops, granite countertops, that kind of thing. So, And with that then comes a lot uh, of... The very organic shape so we're away from those kind of hard-edged plastics and acrylics and whatever it might be and into a very kind of round, scalloped, soft edges very, very organic shapes Okay, and like that's something that you can't replicate outside
1: of nature like you can try but but there's something inherently beautiful about, you know having something in your home like that that you'd say this came from billions of years ago in yeah. the earth you know and it's a almost than, as it was found yeah, yeah, yeah which is lovely rather we've taken lovely. it and over it and look at this square block that we yeah.
4: now have yeah. which came from a factory line and there's 15 million of them so yeah, it, it, there's a much yeah. more unique feeling to it yeah. and that translates to fabrics as well so loads of lovely wools and linens and um, gorgeous uh sheepskin rugs and uh, and those rattans almo- also mm. back in, in fabrics in terms of, you know, rugs and even wall coverings, very, very natural fibre wall coverings. Um, and what that means is a lot of texture. So loads and loads and loads of, of different mm. natural soft against rough kind of textures, which is lovely for mm. layering and for depth and, and all that.
1: So does that mean then, um,
4: Jenny, that you know, colours are kept very neutral and close to nature. You know, it was so funny because there was colour everywhere and I find it hard at an exhibition like that to know if that's because it's eye-catching or if that's because, you know, what's huge. But there was an abundance of colour and there was really both. There was huge like block colours uh, against other, you know, kind of primary colours. There was printed patterns. There was actually a lot of brown. So brown is back and overall there's kind of a 70s vibe. Now... Bear with me. Okay, doesn't sound great. If you say mustard as the next color, I'm out of here. <laughs> a lot of mustard. <laughs> there was a lot of mustard. Uh, oh but brown. So when you think about those natural materials, brown is a really dominant color. But you wouldn't even think of it as brown. You know, you'd think of it as a lovely kind of beige or a stone or something like that. Mm. And that's what I mean when I say when I say brown is back. Right. But it is paired with a lot of those again, kind of seventies. But the best of the seventies. You know, scalloped edges, there was a good flowers. Seventies. Okay. Seventies <laughs> Okay. There was actually yeah, that
1: yeah. whole retro thing. I mean. Everything mid-century is seems to be back now. Huge, and yeah. Did it ever is, go away? Really? Do you know? I blame Mad Men for for all of that because when that came up in the time, people were like, "Why did we ditch those orange couches from you know? <laughs> uh, and those low kind of shiny coffee tables?" But uh, absolutely. No, okay. absolutely, So, so there is lots of color despite all the natural fabrics yes. and the natural thrown there. And there and were I suppose some people want parents. to get their get their pops from somewhere.
4: Yeah, there was. Beautiful pairings when it came to color. So one of my absolute favorites images that I saw burned into my mind—I nearly want to redo my house to to make it look like this—was from a design company called Versmisen. They're Dutch, and they had this setup where all of their walls were painted the most vibrant cobalt blue, and then everything else was in a very neutral color. So you know they had a boucle couch, they had wood. a coffee table, everything was in some shade of neutral and lots and lots of different layers and textures. And the whole effect was phenomenal because that prevented the blue from being totally overwhelming, mm. but still provided a huge amount of depth and colour pop, even though there was really only, you know, two colours or two and one with a lot of different shades.
1: <laughs> and I suppose do, if you were replicating something like that
4: at home and letting the walls speak, that's the easiest bit to change. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you're in a house at the moment and you've got all neutral, you know, maybe you went all in for that gray look uh, in in the past few years or something. Stop looking at me there. Don't throw out what? all your furniture. <laughs> you don't have to completely throw out everything. You could really just experiment with paint and have a very, very vibrant, you know, don't mm. hold back because it does fade into the background a little bit when there's so much Okay, and light. you've got the imprimatur there from all the experts.
1: Yeah. Now, patterns, uh, I know that designers are way better at doing this than regular mortals because the clash of mm. stripes and spots and fabrics and, you know, kind of geometrics and all that. How is that done well for, for the coming uh, year?
4: Yeah. So one one thing with patterns in in the balance that you can do at home is if you pair a big, bold block pattern with a very small pattern. So if you're thinking about stripes, you know, if you stripey wallpaper, if it's thin, narrow stripes, then what looks fabulous is, you know, big, bold pattern curtains against that wallpaper, for example. So that's kind of an easy one to go for. It's also helpful to be, Operating off the same colour palette always, mm. you know, and then things mm. tend to, even if the patterns clash a little bit, then Your the colours are still together. yeah yeah okay. yeah exactly. So patterns everywhere, you know, florals, stripes were huge, black patterns were everywhere. Again, a little bit of a seventies vibe, and I was oh here right. for it. Yeah okay yeah okay, and um so so that means then if people
1: are working with colour as their base, but they have all these neutrals and natural fibres and and layers of things. That means then that that corporatey, that kind of urban chic look is out. Is are we done with that now?
4: I didn't see any of that, and do you know what? It struck me because I I, I didn't notice this absence until I was sitting in a cafe, which which did have that very industrial vibe. You know, the concrete and the bare light bulbs and, and the exposed pipes exposed and all that, kind pipes, of thing. all yeah. that, all that. Which I do still love. I think it's a great look. Mm. I didn't notice it. Anywhere in the exhibition. I didn't see any bare light bulbs. I didn't see any polished concrete, anything. Okay. You know, I didn't see any metal, you know, harsh metal kind of uh, well, industrial thank looking. Thank goodness yeah. for that.
1: All right. Um, so what's your takeaway then, Jenny? What What can, if you were redoing now with all that, that you saw in the two and a half thousand exhibits, what would be your couple of pieces that you go,
4: I they absolutely that's going to be big? Mm, that's such a tough question. Well, I'm never redoing my house because I'm obsessed with it and I will have to be <laughs> levered out of there. Uh, one thing that I saw that I don't lean towards, but but it, it was beautifully done, is in minimalism. So they chose a designer of the year and it was a Belgian studio, Muller van Severen, and their installation was incredibly minimalist. You know, really, really, I can say, thin, curved steel, but in bold colours. Mm. And the shape and the calmness that that brought really actually warmed me up towards the concept of minimalism because it it brought it through in the size and shape and style of the furniture but still allowed for a lot of color and a lot of vibrancy and a lot of, a lot of um movement let's say in in the design okay, so minimalism isn't going away but it's being balanced I would say with uh, a lot of a lot of colour. a lot and of And it's pattern, not coming into your pink
1: loo Probably anytime not. soon with its disco ball <laughs> in the ceiling Right. I did see a disco ball here. installation so
4: keep an eye on that trend that's going to happen
1: <laughs> Alright well listen Jennifer Sheehan thank you so much for bringing us uh, those tips and I know you p- put up a post on yes. Instagram at Workers Cottage uh, and people can go and look at that there and maybe comment on what uh, their takeaways are and what they're planning uh, for their homes in the coming year or so and that's all we have time for on the latest episode of the Home Show podcast. My uh, thanks to Jenny and, of course, to all my guests. If there's anything you missed or anything you'd like to listen back to, uh, that is up on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. And, of course, it's on the website or wherever you get your podcast from. If you want to get in touch with us by email, it's thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And I mention that because next uh, time, we are having in Catherine Arda now she's a lawyer specialising in all things to do with uh, conveyancing and planning and neighbourhood disputes and driveways and all that kind of thing and I know it does exercise people so if you've got a question for Catherine and you'd like to have it answered pop it in now. You can find me on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100 or to the show's address at thehomeshow at Newstalk.com and we'll put it to Catherine and hopefully get some legal advice for you. Uh, thanks to Aoife Breen producing this week and Stephen who who is on sound and we will do it all again
0: next time. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan Saturday morning at 8
1: with Dyken
0: on Newstalk.